Welcome to Access College on KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles, a show devoted to helping students and families get better information about college admissions and better access to higher education. I'm your host, Jenny Umhofer. Today we continue our series that takes a closer look at college admissions from several very specific perspectives. Today's perspective, the future of higher education. Future. The word comes from the Latin root, meaning to grow or become. What is higher education becoming? In what ways and directions are colleges and universities growing and changing? And what does all this mean for students applying to college? We pose these questions to cutting-edge thinkers in higher education. First, we'll hear from a forward-thinking college president who sees expanding access to college as the key to the future of higher education. Second, we'll talk with several college professionals about where they think higher education is headed. And finally, we'll speak with an entrepreneur at the forefront of a radical enterprise that makes thousands of college courses available online to students around the world. Today on Access College, the future of higher education. Dan Porterfield is the president of Franklin and Marshall College, a leading liberal arts college founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1787, about 70 miles west of Philadelphia. I'm honored to be joined by Dan Porterfield, the president of Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. His tenure at Franklin and Marshall has been marked by substantial efforts to diversify the student body and improve financial assistance to incoming students. A Rhodes Scholar with a PhD in English from the City University of New York, Dan teaches courses on human rights and social justice. He graduated from Georgetown University and several years later served as Georgetown Senior Vice President for Strategic Development. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Jenny. So let's start back at Georgetown. What was it about your own college experience at Georgetown that made you so committed to higher education? Well, I was fortunate to grow up in an integrated neighborhood in Baltimore City and to always have kids from a wide range of neighborhoods in Baltimore in my classes. And so on the basketball court and on the baseball field and on the football field and all the other activities I was involved in, Growing up, I had friends from all walks of life. When I went to Georgetown as an undergraduate, I was fortunate to join a student community where I could still have that breadth of background uh, among my close friends. And one of the things that I did in college was to work with my, uh, my peers to develop some educational programs for at-risk youth and for newly arrived immigrants in Washington, D.C. Every single student deserves the opportunity to develop his or her promise to their full potential. And there are a range of barriers that some students and communities face or perceive they face on the pathway to creating a liberating and empowering college degree. Our job as a society should be to try to lower all of those barriers. I learned from working with at-risk kids Mm -hmm. that those students are a collection of talents and assets and potential. And I've taken that philosophy on many years later to my work with college students. We see each and every student at Franklin and Marshall College as a collection of positive attributes that we're going to cultivate for a life of leadership. In Los Angeles alone, there are a number of outstanding programs that we at Franklin and Marshall College work with because they're so good at helping students develop a sense of the possibility for college and the different options they have. One program is called College Track. 
Uh, another is called College Match. There's one called Bright Prospect. There's one called Most and one called One Voice. The Posse Foundation works um, in L.A. The South Central Scholars. All these programs offer students the chance to learn about particular pathways to college. My hope is, frankly, that more schools will um, will dig deep in order to understand the different drives and motives and attributes of great students so that more kids can have more opportunities to go to schools where lower-income kids right now are underrepresented. As I think about the issues of access to college, I, I know a lot of people are talking about the availability of online courses and the rise of MOOCs or massive open online courses as a way to make college courses available to everyone. What's your thinking on this phenomenon and its effect on brick-and-mortar institutions? Um, so I think that there's always a value for any, any person at any age to be able to turn on their computer and have access to knowledge. What I wouldn't want to see happen is Johnny Andrade, who I think you know could be the future mayor of Los Angeles, or Sherilyn Watts, who I think you know, also from LA, who could be you know run a, run a company someday, never getting the chance to interact directly, mind on mind, with faculty member after faculty member during their formative college years. What are you doing at your own institution to try to manage college costs, and where do you think things are headed on that front? You know, managing costs is a big point of focus at F&M, and our story is a little bit of a unique one in higher education. Starting from 2008 until today, so over those seven years, we have more than doubled our financial aid budget. And then with that financial aid budget, we have been able to significantly increase the number of lower-income or moderate-income students attending F&M. And we have to keep increasing our financial aid budget so that we can meet the needs of students and say to the families, you pay what you can afford. The biggest changes um, are that the American population is changing, and that's going to continue. The cha- and you know, demographically, for example, something like 45% of today's K through 12th graders are from minority populations. And so that number will increase. It will probably be a 50-50 for high school age students in about four or five years. And the changing American demographic in terms of ethnicity then is also reflected in other kinds of changes. For example, there's, there's way more right now girls prepared for and applying to college than boys, something like you know, 10% more of college students are girls. So the changing demographic is one of the major factors that has made, I think, American education both even more rich today, even more interesting and important, but also will require continuous change. A second big change concerns the nature of the workplace. Thirty years ago, there were a lot of jobs in the economy that did not require a college degree. The manufacturing sector was much stronger in America than it is today. We were not in a global, knowledge-based economy driven by competition with other countries and by technological innovation. That's the world we live in today. It's the so-called flat world that Tom Friedman has described. And so we have to prepare today's students to be able to hold multiple knowledge-based jobs in the future as that economy continues to evolve. This is one of the, I think, the greatest arguments for sending your child to a strong four-year college. You'll help that student develop the intellectual flexibility and power to adapt to a changing economy. 
in America, knowledge has always been about freedom. You know, the beginning of the revolution, as a country, or the end of the revolution, as the country was creating the Constitution, we were also creating colleges all along the colonies, because the movement from from being a, a you know a, a colony to an independent nation required a citizenry that had the freedom to create their own futures, to understand democracy, to create new businesses, to be able to be change makers in in, a, in, a, in the world itself. And that's even more true today. Any insights or thoughts about the application process itself? Yeah, I think that, that uh, uh, something that may happen that's not great is that it may become easier and easier for students to apply to college without having to take the time to write very thoughtful essays that show who they are, where they're from, what questions interest them, how their family story and their cultural background shapes their conviction that they can make a difference in the world. And I do worry that more and more colleges will move to easy, you know, sort of uh, phone apps where <laughs> click here and you've applied. <laughs> and the, the danger of that is it can make a college look good if they seem very popular with lots of people clicking here. But the downside is that students won't have, maybe won't have enough information. There's probably a student listening to this interview that's at the very beginning of the college application process. I'm wondering what advice you would give to her as she embarks on her journey. Thank you. I have a lot of advice for the applicants. First of all, think big. Believe in yourself. You can do it. You have the power to create the education that you seek. You have what it takes within you at many schools to then pursue your learning with such optimism and such intensity that you will create within yourself a multiplier effect of learning upon learning upon learning. Secondly, I think we should always encourage our kids to learn more about more schools, that information can be your ally. You have in front of you many opportunities, but you have to take the time to learn about them, whether it's scholarships or types of schools or types of academic programs. Invest the time, really invest the time, believing, knowing that wherever you end up, you can then create a catalyzing, life-enhancing education. My hopes for higher education are, A, that we continue to commit to providing a high-quality learning experience for every single student in and out of the class. We must, American higher education must always stand for quality. B, we have to make sure that we make the financial investments we need to make, raise the money we need to make, get the support from government that we need in order to provide financial aid that allows all students to attend the colleges they're qualified to attend. Cost should never be a barrier to a student who's qualified going to the school they seek to go to. Third, I want to see higher education build a bigger bridge of partnership with K-12 through education and see far more courageous, change-making educators founding schools or starting new programs or sacrificing to bring opportunity to kids to feel that higher education is with them, supporting them, standing side by side, helping them deliver a great pre-college education to their students so that we can then take the baton and help those students develop themselves for lives of leadership in this society. And if those three things happen, education will be fulfilling its mission. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Your insights and wisdom have really blown my mind. It's been such an honor to speak with you today. Well, Jenny, thank you for inviting me. You can learn more about President Porterfield and his work at Franklin and Marshall by visiting fandm.edu. That's f-a-n-d-m.edu.
My assistant producer, Ashley Sims, spoke with several attendees at the Western Association of College Admissions Counseling Conference in San Jose, California, earlier this spring, where the future focus seemed to be on the challenge presented by the ever-rising costs of college. At the annual conference of the Western Association for College Admission Counseling, foremost in the minds of admissions officers and college counselors were issues surrounding access and affordability of higher education for students and their families in this era of rising college tuition and falling government funding. Here is a sample of what I heard. So many students are just coming to the point where they have to decide if they're going to go to a community college for the first two just because they can't afford to pay for four years at a private institution, even now, even state institutions. If we start pricing people out of the market for an education, then what, what are we really doing? Do I understand the, the importance of having great faculty and having great resources and having great facilities, but at what point do we sacrifice having students on campus? A lot of low-income, highly qualified students aren't going to the colleges for which they are qualified, and I think that's criminal. So really working on the financial aid process is a huge issue. And I just think it's overall, it's just too complex. There's too many pieces to it, there's too many deadlines, and there's got to be a better way to streamline it. One of the things that would concern me most is the debt that students come out with and the starting salaries that students are able to earn and then how long it will take them to pay these debts. Those of us in the college counseling profession love what we do, and we encourage students to try and find an occupation that they will love and it won't feel like a job. And many times those jobs are not the high-paying jobs, which causes them to pay off their college loans. Some recent studies have come out showing that students with more than sixty or $70,000 in debt lag behind their counterparts who don't have that, even if they're making the same amount of money in terms of beginning to build personal wealth. And that's put it on more real terms for me. Those studies combined with the conversations with families and I feel like the degree to which we had come to depend on families being willing to view higher education as an investment that they would finance in a way similar to a home is not sustainable. Certainly everyone I spoke to agreed that this interconnected problem of cost and accessibility was acute. And when I asked them what they thought will or should happen on the college level, this is what they had to say. So many of us are tuition dependent. And as state and federal monies dry up, I think it's going to really be a challenge for schools. I think that from an admissions perspective, what this is going to mean is that increasingly, I think schools are going to really think hard about the kinds of students that they recruit. I think more and more families' ability to pay is going to start to become more and more common in terms of admissions decisions. One of the things that I know we're going to be thinking about are ways that we can help students understand what an appropriate level of debt to undertake might be and where they would really be straining you know, any reasonable expectation of their resources. For what is the University of San Diego going to do? I think we continue to partner with our, our associations like this, like WACAC, to have a voice in, in the state legislature to try to emphasize the importance of well, the Cal Grant here in, in California. I think we need to bond together to make a national voice and to really begin to help our elected officials realize the impact that those federal dollars have. But in a more practical way, too, I think the university itself is doing a lot more in terms of fundraising. We have to find other revenue sources besides just tuition. I think certainly technology is going to play a large role in, in more and more online learning opportunities. Even state universities can benefit from looking at how classes can be offered now in online versions, for example, distance education. And there can be a combination of ways students can take their degrees. And that way we can maybe fit additional students 
into the learning environment without building additional buildings or needing more classrooms. I remember when California was number one in per pupil spending, and I remember when we really were the golden state. And I wonder why we cannot make it clear that this needs to be the number one priority. But I believe this is a taxpayer of California, and I really want the priorities of this state to support our future leaders and they really should be thinking about education as the way to do that. We need to look at, at our public policy and how education is funded. Uh, you look at California and there is some unused capacity in the independent colleges and universities, yet the Cal Grant is being cut for students that go to the independent colleges and universities and being raised at the public schools that don't have the capacity. So I think public policy, both on the state level and on the national level, is important. And so I'm not sure the Department of Education and the administration spending as much time as they're spending on calculators and a universal financial aid letter would be as important as to addressing some of the fundamental reasons that college educations go up. I remember when, when I was at Harvey Mudd and the total cost of education that was approaching $50,000 back then, I said to my board of trustees that, you know what, we need to be careful because at some point, and I think 50000 is a big number, families are just going to say, we're not going to pay that. But they did. And now that the costs for many colleges have topped 60000 they're still paying it. So I think until families say, we're not going to do that anymore then you're going to see it continue to rise because, frankly, it needs to rise because I think these expenses that colleges are spending this money on are real and they're there. But I don't think colleges have a lot of pressure to curtail those because families demand the best of everything. And as long as they continue to demand the best, colleges will continue to buy and provide the best, which is very expensive. Our next guest comes at the future of higher education from a different perspective particularly the internet. Today we have a guest who is bringing the future of higher education into the present. Professor Anant Argarwal is the founder and CEO of edX, a nonprofit startup that allows students from all over the world to sign up for massive open online courses, or MOOCs, through Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, and other prominent institutions. He is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT, holds a Guinness World Record for the largest microphone array, and has even appeared on the Colbert Report. Professor Agarwal, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's uh, totally my pleasure to be here. So tell us about yourself. How did you get into this line of work? Well, I've been a professor at MIT for uh, 26, 27 years. I've always been an educator, and along with a number of my colleagues have been experimenting with all kinds of online learning experiments. I felt this is something that we should take to the next level, create online courses, offer them to students around the world. A number of us got together. MIT and Harvard were extremely supportive, and they helped us launch edX, which is a nonprofit venture. MIT and Harvard contributed $60 million to the effort so that we could make it a nonprofit. And we launched it about two and a half years ago to offer these great online courses, which are free, to learners all over the world. So our vision when we started had three components to it. One was we wanted to increase access to learning for students all over the world. We wanted to democratize education, and we said we really would like to educate a billion students over the next 10 years. The second leg of the stool was that we would like to improve the quality of education. We were not comfortable you know, just 
beaming videos and multiple choice to the world. We really wanted to improve the quality of education, both on our own campuses and also beyond. And then the third leg of the stool was research. We are gathering huge amounts of data. Think of it as a big data for learning. And right from day one, we had indicated that doing research on how students learn using online data was going to be a big part of our mission. So really, from a, from a basic mission standpoint, these have been the tenets of our dream. And we've just been steadfastly pursuing that and having good success. Our hope is that we would really like to see over the next 10 years Universities also reinventing themselves by bringing the online technology onto campus to create the blended model of learning. And I believe that the change is happening at a dramatically fast rate. Um, this is extremely transformative. Within the next five to ten years, I'm hoping that most all of our universities will have brought in blended learning using online and in person onto campuses. So when you go to sign up for a course, you have three choices as to how you can take the course. Uh, and this is not unlike what you might do on a campus. The first one is audit. You can simply audit the course where you are indicating that uh, you don't really plan on getting a certificate or, you know, you just want to get something partial out of the course, and that is free. The second approach is you can sign up to get an honor code certificate, which is also free. The third is where you sign up to get a verified certificate, and that uh, there is a small fee to get a verified certificate. And there we check your ID and we use webcam technology to take a picture of your face and your ID, and the two are compared to make sure that you are who you say you are. And you pay a fee, and then you can go into the course and take the course. And periodically through the course, before exams and so on, your ID is checked again. If you pass the course, you can get a certificate. So let's say you take a course from Berkeley. You will get a certificate from Berkeley X. The X branding is used to distinguish between a course you might take on campus and Berkeley X that the Berkeley X certificate says that you've earned this course on edX through the online course that is taught by Berkeley. We want to increase access for learning. So by offering these courses, people around the world can take them. It's increasing access to education and democratizing education. I mean, just imagine you are a high school kid from Jabalpur, India, and with the click of a mouse and a will to learn, you can now take a great course in statistics from Professor Ani Adhikari of UC Berkeley, one of the top universities in the world. And you can take the course for free. So MOOCs are really serving double purpose, increasing access while at the same time helping us improve education on campuses. It's not only increasing efficiency, but it's also improving quality. You know, just as an example, on an online platform such as ours, we can grade exercises and quizzes through the computer. Those same exercises can be used in a classroom on campus where students can do all of these exercises and get graded instantly. You know, as an instructor, you know, to get people to come and grade, I used to give pizza parties and have my TAs and co-instructors attend an all-day grading session. Now, through the computer, we can efficiently grade everything automatically and very quickly. For the same cost, it means we can improve the quality of educational outcomes. Similarly, for the same outcome, we can also hope to reduce the cost. So really, efficiency relates to the ratio of outcomes and the cost that goes into creating and offering the material. There's a really healthy debate going on, and as a nonprofit, we're very open. We've even made a software available as open source. When people criticize something, we are able to tell them, hey, look, this is all out there. It's in the open. You know, we are a nonprofit. Our motives are clear and clean. If you don't like something, software is out there. Help us improve it. Or this content is there. Use it in any way that you like.
we really believe that this will help professors focus on areas where the students most demand their help. And many of the more mundane things like grading and lecturing and so on can be replaced with technology, which can be even more engaging to the student. I believe that online learning and MOOCs from edX and so on will be like a rising tide. They will lift all boats. Whether you're a small private East Coast three-letter acronym university or you're a large public university with you know, where your dropout rates might be upwards of 50% or community colleges or even high schools. We're now offering a courses at the high school AP level as well. However, a campus is campus. As my colleague, you know, Professor Sanjay Sarma from MIT says, there's a magic on campus. Now, on campuses, you do much more than just gain content, learn content. You, know, you learn how to work collaboratively. Uh, you work with professors and do research. And there's also the whole social aspect. Campuses are very important. However, I do believe that campuses will look very different 10 years from now. You know, campuses really haven't changed in centuries. I think campuses will look quite different as universities adopt blended models. So I definitely encourage students to go to campus if they can afford campus, or they can find a way to spend at least some time on campus. I think uh, you know, education is absolutely fundamental. I think it's the uh, key to you know, certainly economic prosperity and the key to happiness, and it's all, also the key to peace. You know, educated people are smarter about world choices that they, that, that they make. So I, I think anything we can do to help that you know, is a big deal. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Agarwal. Oh, thank you very much, Jenny. Uh, Really a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Anant Agarwal or edX, please visit edX.org. That's E-D-X dot O-R-G. I'm just going to come out and say it. The future of higher education is the future of our nation and the world. This country was built on education. It started with the founding fathers themselves. Along with founding our nation, they founded some of the nation's oldest and most prominent universities. They knew that their fledgling democracy needed an educated citizenry to survive and thrive. The importance of education to our nation and the world has only increased over time. It's no mistake that the most influential economies in the world, starting with the United States, also feature the best colleges and universities. Education raises living standards, fuels innovation, and increases social mobility. In developing countries, women's lives are fundamentally altered by access to education. Around the world, education makes people healthier, wealthier, and wiser. But there are clouds on the horizon of higher education's future. The burgeoning cost of college shows no sign of abating. For far too many students and families, college is beyond their grasp, or far too heavy a burden. The wide availability of course content on the Internet is challenging brick-and-mortar colleges to rethink their relevance and purpose. Higher education is at a crossroads, and perhaps a crisis. Here's where you come in. You are the future of higher education. You are the learners, the lifeblood of the university. You are the future students, future professors, future alumni, future donors, and future voters. You have a powerful voice in the future of higher education, and you can make that voice heard through the choices you make. It starts with your college choice. Own that choice. Grapple with the questions at the heart of the college application process. Who are you and who do you want to be? Gobble up as much information as you can about the different kinds of colleges out there. Seek out colleges and universities that resonate with who you are and what you want your education to be. And once you get to college and after you've graduated, make your voice heard on issues that matter to you and your education. 
It's been said that the only way to predict the future is to have power to shape the future. So use your power, predict the future, shape the future. Your education, your future, and the world's future depend on it. This is the last in our six-part series exploring different perspectives on college admissions. I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. I'd also like to thank our guests, Daniel Porterfield, president of Franklin and Marshall College, Anant Agarwal, CEO of edX.org, our Western Association of College Admission Counseling interviewees, our assistant producer, Ashley Sim, and of course, our sensational intern and editor, Colin Chalmers. If you'd like to learn more about my work with students and families, please visit thecollege.org. That's T-H-E-C-O-L-L-E-D-G-E dot O-R-G. This is your host, Jenny Umhofer on Access College on KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles. Thanks very much. <laughs>